Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Welcome to 2024 and by far the most philosophical episode of Austin Next. I welcome back for the third time serial entrepreneur Brett Hurt and for the first time Byron Reese. We use Byron's new book, We Are Agora, as a launching pad to discuss superorganisms, the history and future of humanity, and how technology fits into our evolution. Brett Hurt is the CEO and co-founder of Data.World, a certified B corporation and public benefit corporation. Brett also co-founded and led Bizarre Voice as CEO through its IPO, follow-on offering, and two acquisitions. Bizarre Voice became the largest public software as a service business in social commerce and was named by the Wall Street Journal as one of the top IPOs of 2012. Brett also founded and led Corometrics, which was rated the number one web analytics solution by Forrester Research and, like Bizarre Voice, expanded into a global company and leader. In 2017, Brett was given the Best CEO Legacy Award by the Austin Business Journal. He is a Henry Crown Fellow and Braddock Scholar at the Aspen Institute. Byron Reese is an Austin-based entrepreneur with a quarter century of experience building and running technology companies. He is a recognized authority on AI and holds a number of technology patents. He is the author of six books, which have sold over 250,000 copies in 12 languages. He is married to Sharon, whom he met when they were undergrads at Rice. Together, they raised and homeschooled their four children. I hope you enjoy the episode. I am really looking forward to this episode. Byron, I want to welcome you to the Austin Next Podcast. And Brett, this is uh, time number three. So it's an, old, it's an old hat now. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, I'm super happy to be here with uh, one of my best friends, Byron, one of my favorite authors and, and favorite entrepreneurs too. Well, thank you. As am I. Thank you for having us, Jason. So Byron, I read the, your new book. It was really fascinating and lots of questions kind of popping up. I think, though, I want to kind of start at a little bit of a level setting as for people who haven't read the book. I know there's a lot of different terms that we're going to kind of be throwing around. So first off, why don't we start off, what was the prompt? What was the insight that led to say, okay, I need to write this book now? So uh, when I was a boy, I became a beekeeper. And uh, I learned something about bees that that while bees like us are made of cells and a bee is a creature, that there's a really interesting phenomenon, which is a bunch of bees together form a hive, a beehive. And that beehive is actually an animal, not a metaphoric one, but a literal animal. Uh, it's called a superorganism. And, and we know it's like a different animal because it has all these capabilities that none of the bees have. Bees are cold-blooded creatures. They can't regulate their body temperature, but a beehive holds its temperature at 97 degrees. The beehive has a long lifespan, 100 years maybe, but the bees only live a few weeks. The beehive is a memory. And then there's a tr long tradition that when a beekeeper dies, you go out and you tell the bees. This is the telling of the bees. The beekeeper's passed away. And the hive understands that at some level. And I believe they did that with Queen Elizabeth with royal bees when she passed. So I wondered if there was something analogous to humans. Humans are made of cells, and every individual human is a creature, but is a group of humans 
something different, something emergent? Is it an actual animal? Again, not a metaphor, but a biological fact that it's a new creature. And I wondered, when I started writing the book, I didn't know. And by the time I got to the end, I had a firm opinion and I named it uh, Agora after the noisy marketplaces in ancient Greece where all the human activity took place. So the question was, do a bunch of humans together form a new biological creature, a, a superorganism? So when I was reading the book and Agora, right, the marketplace, one of the first things that kind of came to mind was, you know, Adam Smith's Invisible Hand, Wealth of Nations, and that it's the emergent properties of everybody doing these individual transactions. Now, I'm assuming that Adam Smith wasn't thinking about this in biological terms. So what's the difference in your mind then between his concept of the invisible hand and your concept of the Agora superorganism? So there's an, there was a, an essay that was written in the 50s called I, the letter I, comma, pencil. And it was this man who pointed out that nobody knows how to make a pencil. There's nobody in the world who can do all the steps to make a pencil, fell the tree and make the steel and all of that. And even less so, you know, a smartphone. There's nobody who can do that. And yet smartphones get made. And Smith described a mechanism by which resources and labor are allocated. But this idea that it's an emergent new thing, that you can actually... That it's, a, that it's a creature that grows old and that learns, it has a memory. Uh, it's, it's a much bigger, more inclusive idea. So the invisible hand, I mean, I would say that's Agora's hand, is a mechanism by which resources are allocated. But uh, it, that's just like one of the many mechanisms that I think function in the superorganism. And it's not a single, it's almost an emergent thing in the kind of history of humans and biology. I mean, I first came across this concept when you and Brett wrote this article together, kind of building on everything from, you know, DNA to multi-organisms and onward. So how does this, Brett, and if you want to help me out of here, how does this fit into like the history of our evolution, for lack of a better term? Yeah, so, so that article starts with that when you go back to the beginning of life on Earth, you know, eventually we created, evolved to have DNA. And DNA was the original storage mechanism. And you fast forward to today and everything we've created since, you know, from books to the internet to all of the storage devices, basically expand the cumulative knowledge that we can build on top of and that that cumulative knowledge essentially forms the agora. It forms this complex organism that, that Byron's referring to in his book. And that if you take that premise, then things like chat GPT were just an evolutionary inevitability. And that will constantly be evolving to form new ways of storing knowledge and using knowledge forever. And that'll allow us to dramatically increase the productive capability of our species and our planet, you know, to, to live in, in, in a world of true abundance, as Peter Diamandis and other people um, have written about so eloquently before. One of my favorite books is Peter's book um, that's named Abundance. 
you know, we wrote that piece for the one year anniversary of ChatGPT because it really has amazed in a lot of different ways, but it's really just beginning. And it was so inevitable if you look at it from a historical context. And, you know, one, one thing that's interesting that's happened with it is, you know, you can go back to the beginning of ChatGPT launching November 30th of last year. And it didn't take that long after until there was this great demand for a pause, right? A moratorium on it. And last time I was on this podcast was with Worley. And Worley and I were kind of grappling with that. And I was talking a lot with Byron during that period about what do you think about this? I think it's kind of ridiculous. You know, what, what are your thoughts on it? Where we were kind of in the throes of that. And I remember when I was on that podcast with Worley, and I said to him, hey, I feel kind of really unsettled right now. And I think he was like, oh, oh, you're one of those guys, right? And I was like, no, 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 no. I feel, I feel unsettled right now because any time in, you know, I've been programming since I was seven years old. I know, I know Byron's been doing it his whole life too. Anytime a new technology wave comes along, it's very unsettling for innovators because you've got to get your footing really quickly. Well, how are we going to use this technology to better our company, to better society, to ultimately evolve? Like this is now the new baseline, you know? So it, it was, it was a, it was a time of great learning. Like I would actually say that 2023 is one of my biggest years for learning in my entire career. And it's one where I'm really proud here at the end of the year in terms of how data.world has evolved, but I was, I, I felt the ground shift on November 30th of last year. And we'd used early versions of chat GPT or, or really GPT-3, you know, chat GPT didn't exist, but GPT-3 and others prior to November 30th and, and tested them out with, uh, with data.world. But when that actually occurred and we saw it take off and reach a hundred million users, by, by sometime in February is like the fastest company ever to reach that. You know, I knew in December of last year that this was going to be a defining moment for our company and that we were going to absolutely have to be world-class with it. So we were still kind of in the throes of grappling with that last time we were on this podcast. And the thing I love about the piece that, that Byron and I did together is that it places ChatGPT in a historical context to say, look, the, the, the way we've unfolded as a society and all the inventions we've created that start from even before humanity existed, you know, have led to this kind of inevitable point and that this really is just the beginning of, of all this unfolding. And we're obviously in a, in a uh, exponential, you know, technological curve. Um, so we're kind of feeling that we're feeling that, that exponent right now, but you know, ChatGPT is not a panacea. I want to make that clear. There's a lot of there's a lot of ways that it'll evolve, but it's kind of amazing to think about how much it has evolved in just one year and how other companies have tried to keep up. How do we put that entire arc that you guys went through with with you know riding the internet, ChatGPT and the like? Because I remember my moment as you were kind of building up and you went from like you know single cell organisms all the way through humanity that there are other superorganisms you know, beeves, ants, et cetera, uh, that you kind of laid out. There are other groupings, I'd say, you know, there are herd beasts, schools of fish. There are other 
animals whose brain structure and DNA are, I'll say close in quotes, right? You know, um, they're similar, but not, uh, you know, that there's a lot changing in that 99% or that one, that 1% difference. So why is it, it's almost getting into the specialness of humans, that we had that breakout curve? I mean, is it really the singular invention of language that suddenly changed the game? I mean, how, how do you think about that versus why are we not, is there other, there are other tool users, there are other animals that, that have those similar characteristics, but obviously none of them have quite taken over the planet. I actually wrote an entire book on that topic <laughs> about why people and yeah. animals are different. <laughs> It's called Stories, Dice, and Rocks, I think. And it's about how we had such a profoundly different outcome than the, as you said, the other quote-unquote intelligent creatures. And, and you can think about it very very simply. You know, beaver, if, if you uh, look at the fossil record, beavers have been making dams for forever, but they're all kind of still the same dam they've always been making. And then we come along and we have something called progress that animals don't seem to have. And then you say, well, how, how do we have that? And really it appears that it's largely the fact that we have episodic memory. In other words, as hard as it can be to believe, animals live in the perpetual now. They don't know about that there's a past or a future. Your dog doesn't remember, when you say sit, your dog doesn't remember to, the, the time, oh, that time he taught me to sit, I remember that. It, it, isn't, it isn't like that at all. So because we know that there's a future and because we remember specific things in the past, we use that to uh, make progress. And animals just don't have that ability. They can't transcend the moment. Language is just one of the force multipliers. And what's, what's really exciting is, you know, Brett started with DNA. A few hundred meg is all they can store. And then we got to brains, which maybe gigabytes or terabytes. Then we got writing. And now all of a sudden what humanity started to be was the sum of all knowledge. Any two uh, beavers know kind of the same stuff. So 100 beavers aren't that much smarter than one beaver. 100 people know all these different things. And then that when we could externalize it with speech, isn't it amazing speech is only 5,000 years? I mean, um, writing is only 5,000 years old. And you say, wow, we've, we've done a lot with that, haven't we? In like this blink of an eye. And then you say the scientific revolution, that's only a few centuries, but you, that ties right to, to Gutenberg. That's when we lowered the cost of accessing information. And then, and then the big thing with these large language models is that up until for four and a half billion years, all human knowledge has been fragmented. Even libraries are not consolidated knowledge. You still have to know every book in that library and you still have to find the book. It's just more convenient. And what we're finally doing is building a single knowledge base of all human knowledge. And it's none of us. It's an exponential thing. None of us are going to be able to imagine what that's going to do to the human race. It's a, it will dwarf almost everything before it. The idea, search engines almost brag when you say, what's the difference between a cold and a flu? Uh, they say, in a quarter of a second, I found 30 billion answers to that question. And it's like, well, that's great, buddy, but I kind of just wanted one. I want the answer, not the link. You just wanted the right answer. Yeah. I just want one. I, I just want one. And I want to be right for me. And man... Virtually everything every human has ever known is lost. Virtually everything every human has ever learned is lost. And that's the story. I mean, uh, all we save are these tiny fragments. Yeah, we have Plato, but we don't have his, you know, great aunt Martha's lumbago cure or anything like that. We just have these tiny. Now, 
with the internet, with the internet of things and with sensors, we're starting to record causes and effects of all human activity. And we've got all this information that we're going to be able to save. And what we're going to be able to do with that is beyond our capability. It's beyond our capability to imagine. And I think that's where a lot of the fear comes from, is that because we don't know what it's going to do, uh, we worry that it's going to do something bad. That and a lot of dystopian sci-fi, I would say. (laughs) And our brains are actually wired for fear, like because of the way we evolved. And so you actually have to actively fight that. Like one of the things I always recommend to people when I find that they're normally wired for fear, like just the way they talk about technology and everything else, I'm like, hey, just a recommendation. I highly recommend you read these three newsletters each week. You should read The Progress Network. You should read The White Pill and you should read Future Crunch because these are sources that are aggregating all the positive breakthroughs that are happening in humanity every single week. And it's overwhelming how much progress we're achieving every single week. But you almost will never hear about these stories unless you actively seek them out because the child abduction story or whatever horrific thing is happening with, you know, the Russia and Ukraine war it, that will hit your filters and that will be shared millions of times more than a way to solve climate change, for example. Um, so you have to you have to wire your brain to actually seek out all these breakthroughs or you're just going to be an emotional meat bag controlled by a 24-7 media cycle that is just constantly bombarding you with the worst of our species And out of 8.1 billion people, guess what? There's going to be a lot of bad things that happen. But the vast majority of things that are constantly happening in the world are really beautiful and amazing. And unless you actively train yourself to have that type of media diet, you're you're just going to be constantly whipsawed. What in your drinking water is killing you? Tune into seven to find out. Right, exactly. It's going to be at 735 that will tell you the answer of how, what to do instead. But there's an and by the way, two of the three I hadn't heard of Future Crunch, so uh, the other two I actually do uh, do do read. I turned my son onto them very very early on the on. sci-fi note. Uh, I don't know if have either of you seen uh, Devs on Hulu. Oh, uh, phenomenal yeah. show! It's a great, and show. Uh, it's by uh, I think it's Alex Garland and done a lot of other uh, sci-fi. And it's it's on that interesting line. It's it's definitely a little more dystopian and dark, um, and what's going on. But it's pretty it's disturbing. very disturbing. Yeah. But yes, they, uh, <laughs> but it's a phenomenal show. And I don't want to give anything away from the show, but one of the questions that comes, and this is an interesting intersection of these things. So on one hand, in the book, uh, Byron, you mentioned that, okay, all of these, I'm again going back to kind of like the bees example, as I know you spent a lot of time given your past with bees, on that the bees within the superorganisms are doing things instinctually, whatever words you want to use, but they don't actually know, hey, I'm doing this to heat the hive or whatever. It's a very very non-thinking oriented kind of thing. Then we get into the comment that you made about how, okay, we have these little fragments, right? We we have like, you know, Socrates and Plato, but not, you know, Aunt so-and-so's recipe from that period. And with all of the data coming in that we are starting to collect, like we have essentially, you know, right, everything now and more, what's going on and really understanding causes and effects. And I will say the the fundamental, que- one of the fundamental questions about devs is the concept of free will. So if we're thinking about 
agora as a superorganism, and we think about the bees and so forth who are just doing things and not knowing why. And I like your, your comment, Brandon, about like just a meat bag being puppeted by the news. Where does free will sit in all of this concept of these of superorganisms and what's coming next? Not to get extremely philosophical here. Well, I'm just laughing because uh, because I know I know uh, Byron and I have had a long talk about simulation mm. theory, and I know that that's where this may be. <laughs> so sorry, I just I'm just laughing out loud because I think it's it's uh, it's going to be fun to discuss this. Bees do this amazing thing where when they go to once a year they swarm and they go find a new home and when you read about it it's just mind boggling that they uh, all these factors go into it and the size of the hole and near there's other hives and all these things and and then some bees come back and they try to persuade other bees to go check this place out and then eventually there's this critical mass and then they do this really elaborate thing where they they basically fly like an arrow to point the direction all of that and to your point none of the bees know what they're doing how do we know that because those bees are two or three weeks old they've never done that before in their life their brain is half the size of a grain of salt so for them that's all in their DNA somewhere. That's all in their DNA. They know how to do it. Humans have different motivations. We choose to do things. Uh, oftentimes in the human society, it's uh, competition. You know, when you, when you say 10,000 tons of food every day get trucked into Manhattan to resupply 40,000 restaurants, and you say, well, how do they get the right amounts in? Like, who's in charge of that? And how, how is it who distributes where the taxis are and the Ubers are and all of that? Uh, the answer is nobody does. Individual decisions being made by individual people in aggregate make those individual decisions. And they, they have different motivations. They're not doing it instinctually. But they do have relatively, we do have relatively few algorithms. They have reasons that they're ordering that amount of uh, flour and why they're taking their Uber to, to 42nd Street. But it's it's that aggregate that, that solves the problem. And that's what's going on in the superorganism. So in, in short, I would say free will is absolutely a thing. Uh, maybe not for bees. In fact, I doubt it for bees. But uh, for humans, uh, of course it is. Like, I mean, I think, of course it is. Uh, you, you know it. I think, I think that the overlap you would have between people that believe we do not have free will and think that we're limited in a simulation, I think would be shockingly high. I think that the people that, that, that would believe both of those things, and in both cases, they just don't matter at all. Because really, the only thing that matters is the present and what you're doing in the present and the decisions you're making in the present and how that affects outcomes for you in the future. And so to believe that we're living in a simulation or believe that we don't have free will are essentially meaningless concepts. And, you know, again, sci-fi plays a role here because, you know, you could say, well, if we're living in a simulation, like, shouldn't it be like the matrix? And we try to break out and see what the actual truth is. And there's certainly spiritual truth and lots of uh, theories in terms of our global connectedness, including, you know, Byron's book with, uh, with We Are Agora. But at the end of the day, how is it actually going to affect your life? And what are you actually going to do differently. And I, I, find, I find those exercises really kind of a, a, a massive distraction. Like I've listened to Sam Harris, for example, I'm a big fan of his podcast, um, try to describe like why we don't have free will and why it matters. 
And I always conclude at the end of trying to follow him for an hour and a half on him breaking that down. At the end of the day, it just, it's, it's completely meaningless <laughs> in terms of any, any improvement in terms of the way that you would leave, lead your life. Um, but, so I don't, I don't no, get the obsession. Here, Brett, let me ask you a question. You say it's meaningless sure. to you. I get that. But yeah. there are people who, believing we live in a simulation, refer to other people as NPCs. They're non-player characters, non-playing mm -hmm. characters. They don't sure. matter. Yep, yep, they don't absolutely. Matter. And so doesn't it matter if your conclusion from it is you should not care about the pain and suffering in the world? It's not even real. Like, don't you think there are people who come to that conclusion and that, you know, it's like, well, why bother? It's not even real. So I'm actually quite hostile to the idea because I think, I, I think it's, it's trivially, I think it's demonstrably untrue. I think I, I can prove we don't live in a simulation. But that aside, don't you think it's a toxic belief if you act on it? It could be. It could be a toxic belief. Like if someone was contemplating suicide, for example, and they thought we lived in a simulation, they could be like, well, it, none of it mattered in, in, it, at all. Right. And and one of the one of the concepts I grapple with in my book, you know, the entrepreneur's essentials at the beginning of it is the concept of meaning. I mean, my book is largely a book about meaning and unfolding, you know, creating meaning in your life and just how your life unfolds and how you're an agent of your life in that um, and how you're trying to create meaning through entrepreneurship, at least the people that choose that path. And the secret to life, as I lay out in the book is to live a life of meaning. But the challenge of life is that you're the only person in the world that can define the meaning for yourself. Like and everybody in this world has a different variation of whatever their meaning and their purpose is, as Viktor Frankl you know, wrote about in Man's Search for Meaning. So yeah, you're right that if you were a super hardcore believer in simulation theory, that it could actually be dehumanizing where you look at an NPC character and a human being that's flesh and blood and has you know free will and has evolved on this planet over four billion years to get to that moment is just a expendable, you know, simulated object. So yes, that that is true. I haven't actually seen that from simulation theory people though, where they've where they've gone on some kind of rampage or something. So I haven't seen that in practice, like that they've said, like, I went on this rampage because it's all just a simulation in the first place. But it is true that people will go on rampages because they believe that none of it matters. It's Life is meaningless. You know, there is no meaning. You know, we're just a tiny speck in a vast cosmos and et cetera. But I'm a very purpose-driven, meaning-driven leader, personally. I do want to say something, though, about... a. Agora is a very, it isn't like a religious belief. It's just a belief about science. And in the end, it is uh, empowering. The takeaway in the last chapter of the book, not a spoiler alert, is I tell this story about this guy in 1947 uh, who committed suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And as it so happened, uh, there, was a, there was a man who uh, studied suicide at Stanford and he's like, I, I'm going to go up and, and check that out. And he went up there and went to the guy's apartment. He, he was just a regular guy in, in his mid-30s. He didn't have any family, but he didn't have any problems. But he had left a suicide note addressed to no one, just right on his desk. And the note said, I'm going to walk to the bridge now. If one person smiles at me along the way, I will not jump. And clearly nobody smiled at him along the way. 
And that's the takeaway if we are part of a superorganism, is it not a lot of people really like struggle with like, oh, I need to do something great with my life. And, and maybe, but really that isn't superorganisms function because a billion, you know, billions of people every day do billions of kind deeds to each other. And that is the, the energy that sustains the, the superorganism. And and together it, it can do uh, about anything. It can make a smartphone. It can deflect an asteroid heading to this planet. It can do anything. And, and that's really what it's about. It's about individual kindness and individual acts of kindness to each other because you, you come to this conclusion that we're all part of the same, this single animal. You know, one of the stories I, I learned recently, Jason, you may, you may really enjoy this too, or you may have watched when I shared it, but I never knew why Kind Bar was named such. It's actually called Kind Snacks. It's the parent company. And Daniel Lebetsky was the uh, keynote speaker at the ADL Gala here in Austin this year. And he actually told a story there, Byron, that reminds me of what you're saying, where his father, who is a Holocaust survivor, you know, when he was a kid, his mom was pulled in by the Nazis in the apartment building they lived in and was raped. And he literally started crying as anybody would when he's telling that story. Um, his, his father's mom, his grandmother. And um, ultimately, the owner of the apartment building said to his father, he said, you were the only one here that was kind to me. You were the only one here that smiled and went out of your way to say hello to me. So I'm going to let you and your family go right now before the Nazis take you. But leave right now or I'm going to change my mind. And his father said, you know, that guy was actually never a really nice person. <laughs> he was always kind of a rude person. But it was Daniel's way of saying that there's always a shred of humanity in people. And when you can tune into that, but that's why he actually named kind after his father and the acts of kindness that, that literally can change the whole destiny of a family. I mean, if, if his father was killed in that moment, no Daniel Lebetsky, no kind snacks, none of his you know children. I mean, the whole lineage just would have ended right there in the Holocaust, but it's a, it's a counter example to the story you just told about the bridge. And it was, it was one of my most um, moving speeches of the year, you know, being Jewish, you know, one of the things that I've struggled the most with is um, 10-7 and what's happened um, since. And it's, uh, it's been, it's been really unsettling and, and all of the things we've seen around that. But, but that was a, that, it's just a counter example to the story you just told where a kind act actually saved his whole family's life. How do you reconcile the superorganism concept with, I'm going to call it just an observation of, as it of human society, because the stories we just told, there's such a diversity of action, positive and negative. And there's also such a diversity of impact. Like there are people who, you know, the geniuses who built things that changed the world. Now you can make some arguments, some of the things was a race like the, I've heard many people say like, you know, if Francis and Crick uh, didn't discover DNA, it was happening very shortly after. There was, a, there was a race to have that happen. And people have bent history and really changed the course of that. That doesn't describe to me the same things that are occurring in the much more programmatic 
world, non-competition world of whether it be the beeves or ourselves that, you know, there's not a lot of divergence that's happening in each of these things. So it, it hard for me to kind of put that into that, that box without just saying it's, it's the old, like, well, it's a different kind of superorganism. Well, it is and it isn't. I use bees and ants because uh, you see the very simplified example. There's only a few different jobs bees do. And those, those few jobs give rise to all the ability of the hive. The Bureau of Labor and Statistics tracks uh, 100,000 different occupations. That's about how much specialization humans have. And so we're just unfathomably more complicated of a superorganism. And just and, and again, I would think also of your body, which is you know comprised of cells. It's a fascinating idea. Every one of your cells lives its whole life not knowing about you, and yet there's somehow a you, and it's not it's not that the body's half you and half your cells. It's somehow you coexist on the same matter in different patterns. But you have all these different kinds of cells, and some are clearly far more important than others uh, to your long-term health and survival. Uh, you have 300 different kinds of cells, and you know we have 100,000 different jobs. So I, I think we have to almost take it down to the bees to understand understand it. So, I mean, I, I can only give you the, the, the weakest counter, the weakest comparisons, which is, you know, bees go out and look for honey sources. And maybe one of them finds a cherry tree in full bloom someplace and comes back and tells all the other bees about it. Like that bee, it's a bee Einstein, like that bee just discovered the double helix form of uh, DNA. And, and some other bee went some other place and didn't. But what makes the hive work is all of the bees doing their thing and working together. The hive would not function if half the bees were plotting against the other half. And, uh, and that, that would be a broken superorganism. That would be half the ants fighting the other half, half the humans fighting the other half. And that's a broken superorganism. And that's what we have to work against. And the way we work against it is through... Drop back in traffic and let that person in front of you get in front of you uh, in, uh, you know, a billion things like that uh, that happen every hour. That's what strengthens the superorganism. Well, there's the kindness aspect, as you said, like uh, the, the, the story where you told the letting somebody in half the humans, like obviously the superorganism was not working during World War One and World War Two, you know, in that kind of progress. But then you can say there's something more innate, almost getting back to Adam Smith, about the positive dynamics of competition. Right. I mean, I would, I would agree with that. We, we weren't born with the, an instinctual knowledge to go uh, be a carpenter. And therefore, we have to learn to be a carpenter, which is a lot of work. And we have to work really hard at being a carpenter, which is a lot of work. And so we are motivated to do that by this sense of competition, by reward, by economics, all of these things we've built that put us all, we're doing some functional part of the work of the hive. And that's how we do it. You can almost think of money. If, if the world needs less people in some job and more people in the other job, what it does is it drops salary in, in the first one and raises salaries in the second one to try to find these people and try to get these people to move. Ants do the same thing. If an anteater comes along, you know, ants have these three or four or five different jobs. And if an anteater comes along and eats a bunch of ants that are doing one thing, every two ants that pass each other, they each tell each other what they're doing with the, their, their pheromones. 
an ant encounters too many ants not doing a certain thing. She says, okay, I'm going to do that. And then she starts doing it. And, and we just do the same thing. We just use money for that pheromone. And we use prestige for that pheromone and, and all of those other other things. It's just how the system self-regulates. Or, or Uber surge pricing. Yeah, exactly. It's how the system, how the or, superorganism self-regulates. And again, it's no different than your body. Your body produces things that it's lacking and doesn't, and it can break down and you can get sick and you can get well and you can grow and mature. You just think of Agora as just a creature who lives much longer than we do, just like we live longer than ourselves. And so it's a creature with a vastly longer lifespan. And I think any student of history has to try to explain how we've, we used to be intensely cruel, like just out of habit, it seems like we tortured people for entertainment in the public. You know, in 12th century France, they had cat burnings. They built a big fire and they would throw animals in it and everybody was like, ha, 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 isn't that funny? Um, I mean, we were just like terrible, cruel people. And then, and slowly but surely, we get a little better, a little better, a little better. And that's the maturation of the superorganism. It is growing wiser and remembering things and learning things and uh, learning how to get along better. And, uh, And it's growing. And that's why we have progress. And I think, I think an interesting parallel too, is that, or maybe foundational piece of this is, you know, you've all Horari's book, Homo sapiens, where we learned how to be storytellers, right? And, and, and that's what, that's what our piece covers on November 30th, that, you know, we really learned how to invent language. And then we learned how to invent writing and all of that built up to this moment. Um, Cause the, you know, chat GPT is only possible because of an open internet and having access to train on all of that information, which represents, you know, the most, the most massive volume of human learning in history, right? Which is digitized and the creation of the digital age and the internet that even allowed that to occur in storage devices. Um, so one of the things that makes us very different from bees, but I love the analogy because the earth evolved in a way to produce beehives, right, for producing this form of superorganism, is that, you know, we've evolved in a way to become the dominant form of the homo species because of our ability to build on each other's knowledge, to break out of the animal, the animalistic, constantly having to relearn everything and just having and, and be programmed, you know, like like one of my friend's his uh, dog just had puppies and it was his first time to see that up close and personal. And the dog just instinctively knows it wasn't taught by its mom. It just instinctively knows how to take the baby out of the womb, how to clean it, how to, how to lick it so that it can go to the bathroom. Like all of these things that dogs just know instinctively and a human baby, if you just set a human baby down, and it goes neglected, it's going to die. It doesn't know how to go get food. It doesn't know anything. So the only way we evolve as human beings is we leverage the Agora to build on prior knowledge. And I mean, just think about even raising a child hundreds of years ago and what little we knew about that and about basic healthcare and, you know, just basic, you know, education for a child and all of these, all of these things that we've, we've grown to, to know. And now we're in an age where um, Saul Khan can leverage, you know, chat, you know, leverage GPT-4 to create a 
a personal tutor for every child and every teacher, <laughs> which is just mind-blowing, amazing. I mean, it's like what was envisioned in Neil Stephenson's The Diamond Age, but it's happening now. Like we're living in that, in that time right now. Um, and we're really just at the beginning of it. We're just in the first year of the popularization of AI um, in a way where everybody is starting to understand the power of it. And, 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 and now with so much money going into it, we're going to see it evolve at a much, much more rapid pace. Just like the fact that we created the vaccines you know, so quickly for COVID, we created those in the fastest period like the mumps vaccine was the fastest up until then. It took five years to create the mumps vaccine, right? We created the COVID vaccine, but think how many billions and billions and billions of dollars we threw at that. Well, now there's billions and billions and billions of dollars being thrown at AI because of this inevitability of the productivity lift. 2023 will go down as a year where the productivity lift is absolutely undeniable. So 2024 is all about the application of that and the how. One of the things that you, you said, the word you used a lot right there was evolve. And one of the things I'm seeing is, you know, in the, in the history up to X point, I don't know what point I want to say, there's a lot more of the, a lot of the forces that are pushing and the changing of humans are external. It's the nature, it's the environment, it's evolution itself. And with the rapid growth of this type of technology that we have, I mean, Evolution is in some ways falling away. I mean, our, the advancement of medical technology, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's a good thing. The advances of medical technology has gotten to the point that they, if you had purely the survival of the fittest structure, there are people who have been born with a genetic defect or whatever, would not have made it to the point that they could survive or reproduce. And we're now at the point that, oh, well, you still can pass along whatever that is because we have ability to make it fine. Like you, it is livable. It's not, you wouldn't have been considered ideal, but now we have the ability to live through it. And now actually we're even to the next phase where, you know, I don't know if you guys like the sickle cell anemia, CRISPR medications, which in theory should cure it are now on the market. So now we're, there is no evolutionary force on us. The force on the change in human beings is us. Well, to, to jump in on that very briefly, I'm, I'm, I would probably put it a little different. I don't think survival of the fittest has changed any. I think it's almost a universal of scientific law. Uh, what has changed is what fittest means. And, and it's no longer strongest, most virile. It might be wealthiest and um, access to education and access to uh, money. And I mean, it's just a different definition of fitness, I think. IQ, and IQ. Is, it matters way more than strength. One thing I would, I would, I would say too is just, um, I actually think evolution is um, accelerating. Like, like I'll, you know, I'll give you a great example. Like right now I'm wearing contact lenses. I've got negative 6.5 in this eye. I've got negative six in this eye. Okay. I would already be useless 200 years ago. I would, I, I would have been, I, I would have been completely useless because I wouldn't have been able to see, I wouldn't even be able to see what we're doing here. Not that, you know, Zoom and the like existed 200 years ago, but think about how useless. So, so whenever I hear someone say like, oh, I'm a little bit worried about us, like upgrading our bodies and like, you know, marrying with the machines. I'm like, that ship already sailed. 
I mean, if you need a pacemaker, you need a pacemaker. I, I fortunately don't need a pacemaker, but, but I definitely need my contact lenses. You know, whenever we're wearing, you know, performance athletic gear, that's a means of evolving. You know, we're wearing a shield whenever we're wearing military equipment in a military situation, you know, weapons like, you know, I was, I was at a firing range this weekend. I mean, a gun is a superpower. That's something we invented that creates an extension of our body. So it's, it's just, it's, it's a natural and we're in this quickening pace of evolution where, you know, things that we would only imagine in sci-fi books like bionic eyes and everything else, it's just inevitable that's going to happen. It's, of course, it's going to happen. Um, and we're going to have to grapple with all of that in society. Like one of the talks I gave alongside our rabbi, Neil Blumoff for Shavuot, which is the, the day that we dedicate for learning. In Judaism, as I said, our destiny as human beings is always to be as godlike as possible. And we would appear godlike today to people 200, 1,000 years ago. They would not even understand that level of access we have to medicine and foods. And it would just seem so foreign to them. They would be like, you must have come from another planet. And that will be true for us today if we if we somehow could fast forward in a time machine and see people 200 years from now we would we would just not even recognize it we would be like what are you doing you're like inventing this thing from you know the air you know you're just like like inventing food from the air or whatever like you know molecular structure it's just thing, things that would be so impossible to imagine so we're actually the the way that the exponential technology curve works actually follows an evolutionary curve. And we are upgrading um, ourselves at a much more rapid pace than ever before. And I personally think we'll be better, much better for it. Like, I, I'm not afraid of, of that at all. Because I, I think we'll do it with lots of in intentionality. We, we, always, we always have managed to do things with a lot of in intentionality, even if there's flashpoints like the Holocaust, which was horrific. We have, in large measures, evolved to be much more intentional, much more conscious species. The Gora has gotten better and better every decade, even with the flashpoints that, that occur. We're in, a, we're in a grand reckoning right now on social media. Like, like we're still in the early innings of that. Like, so, you know, people always complain about social media, but look, that's a very new invention. What is social media going to look like 100 years from now? Very hard to even imagine. It's I can guarantee you it's not going to look anything like it looks today. Doesn't the intentionality, isn't that the, you know, the term like evolution versus directed evolution? I, I understand like, evol like the, the concept of change, and I think it's a good point that you're making on we've up until recent, the evolutionary changes were purely biological. I grew, you know, the finches grew a longer beak or whatever it may be. Um, now it's, the change that's occurring, the evolution is more of the technological, but you're right though, that we are making conscious decisions. And so we are defining, I've already even said like, is it wealth? Is it IQ? Whatever it is that the, the measures of fitness become more defined internally by us as humans rather than externally. So that's kind of what I think about when I think about like evolution in its natural process, maybe is the way I think goes is being replaced by something more directed and you know, humans are replacing that change and where we're going. Maybe. I mean, people still decide who to uh, reproduce with. 
And uh, I think there's still a lot of biological factors. Given that something like 40% of matches now being are made online, really it's the computers, the, the computers that are uh, selecting us, uh, for each other. So it's well, they're li- see, at least it's selecting options to still make the decision Correct. for the moment. So it's it's I I would you know I would say that that this distinction to me doesn't doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, like I I I already think we've transcended evolution. Like when we invented things like writing and the Gutenberg press, et cetera, these are forms of technology. I mean, this book in my hand, you know, my book or Byron's book, these are this is technology. I mean, this is technology. Like other no other creature on earth, no other animal on earth has this has the ability to do this has the ability to write down the knowledge um, that they're going to allow their descendants to build upon no other creature right so it's only human beings so we've already transcended that and the digital manifestation of that just accelerates things i mean with the advent of the of you know storage mechanisms and the internet and and now chat gpt and what comes after that um, so this has always been our destiny. Our destiny has always been to be to be as godlike as possible, um, and that's that was unsettling when I gave that talk in the synagogue. Like one of the things I pointed out to just be provocative, but but I really believe it is. I said, "Look, how many people in here think that we'll evolve to be able to select, uh, for example, the eye color of our babies?" And people like felt like, "Oh, that's really." I said, "Okay." I understand that's provocative, but how many people in here would guarantee if they could that their child doesn't have the genetic disease that runs in their family? Everybody's hand shoots up. I'm like, there's your gateway drug. You're already there. Like you're, if you, if you, if you make that choice, then there'll be people that make that choice and say, uh, and yeah, I want them to have green eyes or blue eyes or whatever. And, you know, maybe I want them to have a little bit like higher IQ or whatever. Um, so we've already made we've we've already made the choice in terms of the way we're evolving. And again, you know, one really simple way to think about it, and Byron and I've talked a lot about this, is if you could take everything you have, everything you know in your life that you really you know care about, and go back fifty years, a hundred years, two hundred years, where would, when would you go back? And that always is a great grounding exercise to actually say we are living in the best time in the history of humanity right now with all the warts, all the problems. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not a utopist, like, but I am a believer in the power of humanity. And the thing I love about um, Byron's book is that it is a fundamental belief in the power of us to evolve and get better and better, which I think is innate in terms of the evolution of human beings in particular. You don't see dolphins like being much better than they were a thousand years ago, although they're amazing creatures and beautiful creatures, right? And they're smart, right? But they're but they're not evolving to become better forms of dolphins. And even the the evolution of of how we interact is changing. I mean, your point with the, like social media and you know uh, meeting you know future spouses online, because I think one thing was there was interesting parallels. So the 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 hive the the central locus of the agora Byron you put was the city, and I had on a previous podcast uh, uh, Chelsea Follett, and she had a book called The Centers of Progress: Forty Cities That Changed the World, and looked at various technological improvements from the writing, the printing press to modern finance, and how those were you know with this aggregation effect 
um, or agglomeration effect kind of building up kind of that moment, right, that, that to lead to these massive changes. When we go through this technology that we have and like the internet, the, the nature of cities is changing. We're having digital cities, people, which is, I think of just agglomerations of people with similar, some sort of similar box. They put them around, even though they're not in the same physical location. And then at the same time, you also have cities being interconnected in different ways. So, uh, you know, Richard Florida recently had out uh, a research piece called Rise of the Meta Cities. And it was really having these connections of different cities and their growth together means something. And it's not like, oh, it's the city next door. So all three of us are sitting in Austin. And he talks about how you cannot look at Austin's, especially Austin's recent growth without looking at its connectivity to Silicon Valley. Same thing with Miami and New York. So how do we kind of bridge or look forward on cities and however we want to define that exact term being the locus of this change and of the agora and then layering on top of this connective tissue of technology changing in the face of what a city is great question i mean the way i wrote the book i said that you know this individual city functioned like a superorganism, and then on the other side of the world this individual city did and they were kind of two separate things because they didn't share information they didn't have any emergent properties between them uh but that in our interconnected world there a billion people every year uh, change where they're living and people go between countries and, and so forth. And so we have become kind of a, a single thought sphere. You know, the city was powerful for two reasons. One, you can reproduce online. It is the, um, the exchange of ideas and, and debate and all of that. And that definitely happens. The other one, though, was about the physical space. The baker had an oven that the ceramic person could use and that the stained glass person could use to try to melt glass. And, and there were resources in the city that, that could be shared. In the early days of the internet, I'm sure you both remember this, it was very trendy to predict the end of cities, that who would want to fight traffic in Chicago when they could live in Carmel and have an ocean view, and that the internet was just going to connect us all in such a profound way that we wouldn't have cities anymore. It was predicted again in the pandemic fire yeah, that, that would happen again. Bill Gates said that that's where it yeah. was going to net out again. However, <laughs> that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like a quarter million people a day are moving into cities. And uh, and they just have a, a kind of a, an allure that is the, the physical proximity adds something to it. So, But I do think it is becoming, I do think at this point we can talk about Agora as being a planet-wide uh, superorganism. Unless there's like some uncontacted tribe who's never heard of Santa Claus or Levi's or Legos or any who isn't part of the culture and doesn't communicate, that would not be part of the superorganism that we're in. Uh, but most all of us uh, are part of the and imagine, imagine, Byron, if all the beehives could be connected worldwide, how much better they would function together. That is exactly right. I, I have an example uh, about that in the book with ant mounds spreading. And at some point, they may specialize and that the collective, all the ant mounds become a different creature. You know, and it's worth asking, why would it just be three levels? You have cells that come together to form organisms. Organisms come together to form superorganisms. Couldn't superorganisms come together and form super duper organisms? And, and, and there is no reason that couldn't happen. I mean, the time scale again would shift and, and all of that. All we're talking about are emergent property. When, when, when multiple things interact and then they specialize, 
And through that specialization, emergent properties form, and that those emergent properties are part of that new creature, and that new creature takes on a life of its own. And that's what you are. None of yourselves uh, could live a part of you. And that's another thing about superorganisms. You can't take a bee out of a hive anymore. It has thrown in its lot with the hive. And your cells, you can't take them out and put them in a petri dish and let them live. And humans have become like that too. You can't drop me in the wilderness with nothing and uh, expect me to thrive. Uh, we've thrown in our lot. We're all specialized. There's an interesting phenomenon where our brains are shrinking now. And they have been for a couple of thousand years. And, and I, I think it is a very simple reason. We all know a lot less. We know a lot more about something. You know, your, your hunter-gatherer was a jack-of-all-trades, could do 10,000 different things. And all the hunter-gatherers could do each of those things. And so a bunch of hunter-gatherers weren't any more better than any better than one. But then they start specializing. And then once they specialize to one point, they can't live apart from the whole anymore. And then you have the superorganism. And that's what I, where I think we are. We have thrown in our lot with each other. And that's why cities, I think, are so compelling. So then as we're building up, when we talk a lot about ChatGPT, but getting at its more fundamental AI and use that term broadly, are we creating that kind of throwing in our lot together with the technology, right? The contact lenses situation, which obviously set up thinking technology. But as we head towards some sort of AGI, whether that's next year, a hundred years, a thousand years, can that be seen separately from the Agora superorganisms? Is that actually a new superorganism we're creating? Like how, how should we start thinking about when we look at it forward? Well, I'll give a very quick answer to that, but I'm very interested in Brett's answer. Uh, my quick answer is there's a divided opinion on that. There's uh, Kevin Kelly, who believes in the technium, this superorganism that's created by all the technology of ours that is independently communicating with each other and it taking on its emergent properties. I don't, but I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I don't believe in general intelligence. I don't think, I don't think it's possible. And I know that's a very minority belief, but, and that's why I qualify it. Uh, I'm, I'm eager to hear uh, Brett's thoughts, but I, I don't think so. Technology augments humans. That's what it does. Augments human ability, amplifies what we are able to do. We are the driving force. We are the will that is in that. You can plug in as many computers together as you want, and it's not going to uh, become alive, I don't believe. But like I said, I'm curious. Brett and I may part company on that. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, the way I look at it is that we should be racing along to try to create AGI. Because along the path of that, we will be creating much, much more easier ways to leverage the information and build upon it. Um, and there will be many specialized AIs that are created along the path of striving to do that. So the strive to me is well worth, well worth it. The fear, I, I almost feel like AGI is like a flashpoint term that that it's the, the fear is that um, we create something that is so much more intelligent than us um, in this AGI kind of destination um, or step of evolution that it then takes over and treats us in a way where it's similar to the way we treat animals. For, for example, like in Homo Deus, you know, you have all know Harari's book. It's a very dystopian book, actually. He is a vegetarian. I'm also a vegetarian. 
I really have a problem with animal cruelty, and it's part of the reason why I make that choice. And I believe that we live in such an abundance in America that we'd make the Romans blush. Okay, and so I can I can choose to eat whatever I want and not intentionally harm animals, but I don't judge other people on that basis because it really is a personal choice, you know, and it's one that 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 many people have made along the way. But one thing that Yuval Noah Harari as a vegetarian assumes is that the way we treat animals with factory farms, et cetera, is the way that machines would treat us because we will be the ones to invent the AGI. And so why wouldn't we imprint on the AGI all of our all of our policies? And I just don't believe in that. I actually believe we're already on an evolutionary um, uh, path where we are treating animals better and better every year. Like, I feel like we're in the grappling of that. We're still in the early innings of even doing that. And part of what I disagree with on with Yuval Noah Harari is that he assumes that our capacity to evolve morally is fixed. And it's just not true. I mean, like we had slaves in this nation, you know, hundreds of years ago, and we've evolved way past that. We used to treat women horribly in this country hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and we've evolved way past that. Now there's flashpoints like the abortion issue, et cetera, that, that will occur from time to time and will test us and we'll, you know, grapple with that and evolve and evolve to, um, to improve policies over time. Um, but I just, I just don't believe that human nature is inherently evil and that therefore if we ever strive and strive and strive to actually create AGI, that it will be imprinted with evilness and look at us like we would look at an ant that we would step on as we're walking um, along the street. Like, I just, I just don't believe that because, because look, we're going to imprint it with intentionality of humanity. And there's going to be so many paths along the way of creating AGI to imprint our values on it. Um, I mean, so much intentionality is going to occur with that. So I think, I think it's almost like a litmus test on, do you believe in the inherent good of people or do you not? And one of the things I love about Byron's book is that it assumes the premise of the inherent good of people, because as Byron writes so eloquently, we would have already wiped ourselves out a long time ago if we were inherently bad. I mean, there would be no humans today if we were inherently wired for absolute destruction. And so maybe that fear part of our brain is actually a good thing where it kind of keeps us on the right path where we're always grappling with, well, we've got to, we've got to keep on advancing in a way where we, where we reduce the possibility of those fears. Um, maybe that keeps the guardrails a bit. I just believe that we're constantly evolving morally too as a superorganism and that, you know, a hundred years from now, we will look back in time for sure. A hundred years from now, I am absolutely confident and will say the way we treated animals was horrific. I'm absolutely confident that will happen because we are already on the path to the Star Trek future where we invent the steaks and the chicken, you know, strips and everything else with machines that don't even involve the animal in the first place. Like that's already happening. It's just early innings of that. And, 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 you know, people are like, oh, it'll never work. Well, there are a lot of people when digital cameras first came out 
including my brother-in-law, um, who I've argued with a lot about this at the time, who was like a mega, you know, camera, you know, person, like just really into how beautiful photography was and everything else. And I was like, Stu, look, you know, you're a technologist, like, you know, that that's going to be obsolete. Like, you know, it is, it's like the first it's, you know, I understand that digital cameras are really bad. Like when they first came out, they were horrible by comparison. But I'm like, look, you've seen this happen with printers. You've seen this happen with so many different forms of technology. You know that it's going to be better and it's going to be ubiquitous. It's just like inevitable. Um, and, you know, occasionally I'll remind him of that because I'm like, this is just, you know, are you wired to believe in the art of the possible versus um, constantly comparing with what we had as opposed to unfolding evolution of what we will have, which is better than what we had before. I mean, we live in an age of abundance now that would be absolutely unthinkable to people hundred years, years ago. And, and, and people listening to this should read books like Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now, like really read that and embody it and get steeped in the data because you can just get so locked in a fear mindset with all the 24 seven negativity being pushed to you to spike that, you know, cortisol and really, really get you wound up and get you addicted to those clicks, you have to fight it. Like you have to fight that to understand the art of the possible and, and, and the beauty of how we're evolving. And I think you can even, I mean, another frame to look through it is when you say that we look at the abundance we have today, compare it to where, you know, where it was 200 years ago. If we put the frame of imagine when somebody a hundred years from now and will look at us and say, wow, they had nothing compared to what we have today. The abundance that we have today will be considered, you know, not, not uh, bountiful. You know, if, if fusion technology takes off, right, the amount of energy that is available for free, that, that what we can do. I mean, is in your book, you talked about how energy is one of the key drivers and the fact that we producing more, producing more energy and using more energy will lead to more prosperity. So let's figure out how to create more energy. I mean, if I could go back 200 years and I could meet like my predecessor, you know, my ancient, ancient ancestor, and they had as bad a vision as I have today, I'd feel very sorry for them. And I would like want to bring the invention from the future to save them, right? Um, and so I'd look at them with uh, empathy and I'd be like, wow, that's so sad. And, and you know, 100 years from now, I mean, we can dream big. Um, have we colonized other planets by that point? Have we upgraded our bodies to the point where we're like, wow, they were just wired to just pure evolutionary biology. Like they hadn't even upgraded, you know, their blood systems to include, you know, nanobots that are constantly fighting cancer cells, or maybe that's not even the solution. Maybe we just solve cancer like Byron talks about um, in lots of books through just technological evolution. And, and it's just a technical problem to be solved. Um, so, you know, but, but, but for sure, they will be very different than us and they will probably transcend um, the biological realm, either through, you know, machine augmentation or, you know, literally just being ethereal. I mean, like, like, uh, you know, so who knows? It, it's very hard to predict. It's, it's very, very hard to predict, but it's, but, but we for sure are evolving and we're in the most evolutionary phase of human species right now. And by the way, 10 years from now, that'll be more accelerated than it is now. And I know that that can sound unsettling, but 
but again, I would, I would, I would just pose to you again, would you go back 50 years? Would you go back hundred years? I mean, I would not, I would not go back 200 years at all for many, many reasons. Um, but one of them is just the biological or technological advantage I have right now with contact lenses make me actually function. I mean, I can't imagine like being born with this bad of vision and just assuming that the world just looks like that. Like that would be, it's kind of like the allegory of the cave, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave. I would just assume that everything is constantly fuzzy because <laughs> that's all the reality I would ever know. So this has by far been one, I think one of the most philosophical podcasts that we've had and it's been great and really interesting. So I am going to ask a little bit of prediction here. Now you can go in any ways that you want with this, but I always like to end with the same question. So Byron, I'm going to start with you. What's next? Um, in what context? All of it. As we think about Agora, as we think about technology, as we think about all of this and where we've been talking, what, hap what, what comes next? I have this intuition that, just like that article Brett and I wrote, where when we have access to more information, dramatically more, you know, there's that old saw, knowledge is power. Well, what kind of power? It's a power to make your life better. It's a power to, to change things and shape things. And just going from DNA to brains and brains to writing, to speech and then to writing, each one of those was a dramatic change in human existence, just like what Brett was talking about. If we're really going to take another one, which I, I think we are, then uh, I do believe that our destiny, we live in a universe that sure looks like it's got a lot of space in it for us. And so I believe we will spread to a billion planets and we'll populate each of them with a billion people. And each of those billion people will be empowered to live their best possible life. Every, every Mona Lisa, I mean, every Da Vinci will paint their Mona Lisa. Every Marie Curie would make her discoveries. Everybody would be empowered to, to achieve the most that they could. And uh, that, that, sounds, uh, that sounds implausible, but I think that is the arc we are on. I think it's almost inevitable. Not, it's not like a wish. I think it's almost inevitable that that's what our future will hold. I, I think I agree. I think it's inevitable. I think it's just the time scale is the question. That's, that's what we control. Brett, here's my question to you. Would you go 100 years in the future if you could? I would. Okay. Yeah, I can answer that immediately. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would want to bring everybody I care with me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, but I would. Yeah, and I've always, I've always thought that way. Ever since I was a child, I always thought that if I could jump forward in a time machine 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, I would do it. I mean, even if it's 1,000 years, I would do it. So I, that's, but that is, uh, look, I'm also wired very much to be an art of the possible person, to believe in the beauty and power of humanity, to believe in the inventiveness of creating a better world, to believe in the philosophy of Judaism, of tikkun alam, to repair the world, to, that's deep, deep, deeply embedded in, the, in my whole life philosophy. And again, if you start reading a media diet, and you know, I think that people will be listening to this in early 2024. And if you start 2024 with a New Year's resolution to start reading a media diet of books like Enlightenment Now, books like Abundance, books like Byron's, you know, books like mine, um, Entrepreneur's Essentials, and all of these newsletters I mentioned, again, The White Pill, you know, Future Crunch, The Progress Network, um, it will rewire the way you think about possibility. And although 
there are always a lot of bad things happening. There are also a tremendously greater number of good things happening in our unfolding evolution. And so I'm very bullish on the future. And I really think that the striving we have um, to create things like AGI, I don't know if I believe that it's possible or not to answer a question very um, practically on that, Byron, but I, but I damn well believe that we should try. Because along the way of, of shooting high like that, you know, whether it's colonizing other planets, where it's inventing AGI, whether it's, um, you know, merging with the machines, whatever it is, we will invent so many things that are so bewilderingly great and make humanity better than ever before that that's our natural destiny. And I really believe that we're, we're on a path and have been on a path since the beginning of humanity to be as godlike as possible and live in an age of absolute abundance and wonderment. Um, I, I feel that very deeply in my bones. Um, and that's why I absolutely love life and you know cherish life and cherish family and cherish the creative potential of all of us um, in this Agora. So that's, that's where I stand. One, one of the things I love about the podcast is we always end on such a note of positivity and optimism. And I think it's just really what we need more of. Byron, Brett, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, always a pleasure, Byron. Yeah. Good. Thanks, Jason. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.